Welcome to Cutting Frames, an animation podcast where four engineers learn the principles of animation, share those principles, and try to suss out what it really means in the grand scheme of things. You know, the life, the universe, the everything, the the. Anyway, I'm Ken Jacobzak. I am a dev, and I love animation. My name's Cooper. I love history and all 2D animation. My name's Lachlan. I fucking hate animation. Uh, my name's Sophie, and I love animation and art. So we included Lachlan here because we figured that having an antagonist is often a compelling thing in a story. I'm more of an anti-hero. An anti-hero is also a compelling I thing. I might come around eventually to defeat the real antagonist. I anticipate that might happen. So this week we're talking about anticipation, which is one of the 12 principles of uh, animation. It is a very important principle, and it ties directly to our last topic from last week, uh, or last month, rather, because this is a monthly podcast. Anticipation is a very important principle, um, one of the 12 principles of animation. Uh, It directly correlates to the last topic, squash and stretch, and our local historian, Cooper, We'll talk a bit more about that. Yeah, so last week we talked about squash and stretch, arguably the most important of the 12 principles. This is because it describes the object's properties in terms of weight, flexibility, and movement. Uh, It also um, allows animators to describe the environment, motion of an object, or even a motion of a face. Uh, The use of squash and stretch uh, gives a good setup for our next uh, principle of anticipation for today. And so anticipation as one might have guessed, is used to prepare the audience. The audience uh, that watches the scene must have a planned sequence of frames that leads them from one activity or action to the next. If this doesn't occur, the audience will be confused as to how an object or character got to where they did. Uh, Anticipation is used to let the audience know what is happening next so that they can get an insight into the way it is done by a character. So I feel feel sort of confused. So why why is the audience confused? Like, Let's see, a character goes from point A to point B. When they get to point B, why can't they just say, oh, I see how they got there from point A because it's in the past. Why do they, we have to anticipate them going from, from A to B? Well, like for our regular uh, day-to-day, we actually do a lot of anticipation without knowing it. Um, and we understand what the usual movement is from point A to point B. And so when you're winding up or you're running, um, you know what uh, you have to do to stop. But if someone in or a character in animation just randomly does something out of the blue, um, that sometimes can confuse the audience because you might be either missing frames or you just don't know how they contorted their uh, body or animation to get to that. So that's usually how people get confused about it. Um, but usually that doesn't happen, or if it does happen, it's done on purpose. Um, and so in practice, uh, anticipation usually occurs when the character uh, prepares for an action um, to give a clue as to what's going to happen next. Um, by doing so, it also usually makes the action feel more realistic. 
And so this anticipation can be a little as a small change in a character's expression or as large as the object itself. Um, at times, this action can be exaggerated for effect in animations to make it more clear around what the next action will be. Um, so the, oh. Oh, I was just going to say, what are some examples of uh, uh, anticipation? Um, so the best uh, example is probably one in real life. Um, I, I'll probably use the one for a baseball player. So uh, when you watch a pitcher throw um, a baseball, uh, you will see them kick their leg up, then uh, take their step, wind their arm back, and then throw it. And so for us, we know that that's the common practice for people to throw a baseball. And so if you see uh, a major league pitcher um, stand on the mound and just push the ball forward without winding up or kicking or taking a step, um, that would confuse us because that's not how you kind of throw a ball. Um, and obviously, uh, uh, he probably won't be in the game for much longer as well. So It's also physically impossible. Yeah, probably. Well, I mean, have we seen shot put throwers? I mean, I, they don't do that either. But, like, have we seen a shot put thrower take a baseball and uh, push it forward? Yeah, but, but the thing is, is that you <laughs> anticipate a shot put thrower pushing it like that, but you don't anticipate the uh, baseball player doing it. The other thing is, like, the, it would be a lot slower, right? So, so you had a shot put throwing the baseball, it's like, zoom! You'd be yeah. like, what, the, what is going on? So exactly. you're saying that anticipation doesn't actually necessarily describe... Uh, motion it can also describe setting and it can also be a set piece rather than just a actual like point a to point b thing it can also be part of the universe or like well i i mean it, that's all part of, what we just described is all part of our universe but you know what i mean like it could be a uh in continuity thing where you anticipate something due to the fact that it doesn't contextually make sense yep. otherwise that's exactly right so uh in our world um no one can fly, or at least that I know of. And so when you want to jump or to get off the ground, you're going to have to crouch to do it to get any height. You can do it a little bit if you don't crouch as much, but you're going to have to do that um, to be able to get off the ground. And so in animation, uh, the same principle applies. And so if in an environment where there's a regular person and they don't crouch and they just fly off the ground, um, you're either confused or you just found out that the character can go and fly. And so this is very different if uh, Fred Flintstone did it, you would go, obviously that character can't fly, and so that's something that's completely wrong. Or that, oh, hold on, hold on. There was that mystical being that did come and visit with a, with a big green head. It was like an alien from the future. Yes. And he was like, well, I can mess up your universe right now. Uh, Mr. Flintstone, what would you like me to do? <laughs> and then he could theoretically fly with that, with that boy. Yes, but until that creature comes into the environment and lets us mm -hmm. know that, Fred Flintstone's not going to uh, fly. So you're saying the anticipation of that character yes. leads up to us knowing, well, something's going to fucking be different. Exactly. Something's going to really throw up this, this Flintstonian right. dinosaur. But, but if man. Superman was to do it, we wouldn't be surprised because he can fly. But he'll usually prep in other ways mm -hmm. by putting his arms out or um, doing something like that so that they know that the audience knows that they're going to fly and mm -hmm. Superman's going to fly mm -hmm. next I think that kind of segues kind of into the topic we were talking about before about the different being different types of anticipation, like the anticipation of a certain motion, for example, kind of wanting up your arm before you throw a baseball. Also, like you said, literary anticipation, like when the alien shows up in the Flintstones, you know things are going to get a little hairy. Yep, and so uh, there's very different ways in which anticipation can be done. Um, we gave some examples of prepping an action. Um, there is one where like the environment changes. So, you know, the anticipation of, Hey, something different is going to happen based off that. And then the other one is usually around emotions. Um, those are the major, uh, that the next major one. 
Um, and so the, a good example of this is when uh, Wile E. Coyote uh, runs off the ledge. And for an instant, uh, gravity doesn't take hold in the, in the environment. Um, it takes some time uh, before he falls because they want to give some time for him to look at the audience and have an emotion to know that he is going to be scared and or um, uh, in a bad place to then fall. And so that's like comedic type of moment that they use for anticipation. That makes sense, because if he were to just fall, then we wouldn't really be able to see, see any kind of emotion. Exactly. And so that happens all the time um, outside of just 2D cartoons, but also in like 3D animation and in real life, too. Mm-hmm. Because you'll prep or have like a snarl or something like that mm-hmm. or something mischievous um, to know that you're going about to do something funny. Or if you know you're going to uh, tell a funny joke like Ken always does, he always laughs at himself before he says it. <laughs> I Well, yeah, because I find myself to be very funny. Um, you know, it's just... If you can't laugh at your own jokes, why even joke? Anyway, um, so I, I did want to actually bring up anticipatory movement in martial arts because um, I, you know, don't mean to boast here, resident two-time brown belt. <laughs> so as the resident two-time brown belt, I do want to bring up the fact that uh, in martial arts, one of the core principles of sparring uh, is to, while paying attention to the opponent, pay attention to the shoulders, the way that their shoulders move, because it's anticipatory movement. You have an idea of what they're going to do based on the positioning of their shoulders and how they're moving them. Um, it can indicate a punch. It can indicate a kick, because to do any sort of kick, you need to move your shoulders. Um, the shoulders is typically uh, like watching them. It's the focal point. It's what you care about, because you know that if they move their shoulders, you're going to have to respond in some way. Um, so I know that uh, they also have that in both sports and martial arts where uh, you'll transfer a lot of your weight from one place to another. And mm-hmm. so you'll see that weight transfer and be able to anticipate their move mm-hmm. based on whether they're punching. that will come from their legs and then their waist and then all the way through to their arms. Uh, core. Core? Okay. I'm gonna, well, oh, it's, your, it's your core. It's, it's hip. Uh, it's hip. And if you're watching an animated character and they're not doing that, it's a little confusing because you're used to seeing that. Yeah, so I'm assuming that Popeye probably um, punches uh, the correct way, much like other martial arts or fighting games also do the same thing. Uh, kind of. Kind of. Um, so, well, it, it depends on the martial art, right? So Kung Fu, the movement's different than, like, karate. So, like, when I, when I practice karate, it's kind of, like, above the... Not to be lewd, but above the pubic region, which is kind of like I would describe that as being my core area where the hip motions then describe what the rest of my body is going to do. But then it propagates up to the shoulder, which ties into that sort of watch the shoulders bit, Um, primarily because the sort of anticipatory movement of the shoulder is what indicates what's going to happen. So Popeye does do it, but I don't I would I don't know if it really kind of like that, like middle area is usually I guess I haven't seen Popeye in a while. Just ignore um, me. Speaking of uh, martial arts, uh, I think, Ken, you were talking about this before we started the podcast about Kung Fu Panda as being a good example of this. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a great, it's a great example. Um, we all watched a clip of Kung Fu Panda prior to this. Uh, now, Kung Fu Panda, everybody loves Jack Black. Everybody loves Dustin Hoffman. Put them together. One's a mouse, one's a panda. The mouse trains the panda. Um, there's a scene where... Um, the the master uh dustin hoffman i believe it's it's dustin hoffman right i have no clue you know what? let's just say it's dustin hoffman if it's not then it's a big old goof on my part point being they're done with a day of training and they're about to sit down and eat and everybody knows that jack black as as mr panda boy 
loves food. It's a, his whole it's his whole reason for existing. It's does, food. Does Jack Black always love food in his every character he plays? Uh, I didn't see him love food in that movie where he was the wizard recently, like the clocks and the walls. Uh, he didn't love food in that as much. I think he's really um, like growing kind of beyond. I think I think if you read into the extended universe of uh, the clocks in the walls, clocks in the walls movie, he he loves food. Oh, okay. Actually, yeah, you need to read the three of the novels at least. To... Oh, okay. So you've read those novels? Yeah. Um, Did you see the movie? There was a movie. Oh shit, dog! <laughs> it was bad. It wasn't very good. It was actually kind of horrifying. Um, there's a scene where there's an animatronic, animatronic Jack Black baby hybrid where it's Jack Black's head, but a baby's body and it's terrifying. Um, in fact, I think I linked it to you all like a while ago. I did. And we, and we, and we made the joke that maybe it was, uh, it was a producer goof where he was like, we need Jack Black, baby. <laughs> and then that's, that's what they ended up with. Okay. So the character does love food. They didn't convey it in the movie surprisingly though. Now... In Kung Fu Panda, um, a lot of anticipatory movement is, uh, it, it occurs in that scene where they're fighting over these dumplings. The last dumpling, in fact, because the master just pretty much eats all of them except the last one. And that enrages Jack Black Panda. Um, so he really fights for it, but you can see a lot of anticipatory movement in his jaw movement, him getting ready to eat this final uh, dumpling. And, and they uh, prep it by mm-hmm. doing slow-mo at that time. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And uh, they, it, in almost like a, a 180 degree flip, there's almost no anticipatory movement from the master who's just very quickly um, initially eating all these dumplings uh, with almost no anticipatory movement to show how quick he is, uh, which is meant to be a goof, right? So eventually this dumpling gets flung into a tree and pierced by like a chopstick and the chopstick sticks in the tree and starts to slide down the chopstick. And the anticipatory movement uh, of that, like, oh, it's going to lead to a fall is used as a sort of... Uh, comedic note where they're just basically fighting below for this dumpling above um and they keep doing it they keep fighting over it and eventually uh just sort of definitely jack black panda is showing the most anticipatory movement um but over the course of the fight jack black panda gets better at fighting because he really loves food but the way that he fights because he's such a bombastic character means a lot of his body is moving in sort of uh a jello-like way, if that makes sense. And so that sort of jello-like movement indicates what he's going to do next. Is he going to bounce? Is he going to uh, do anything? So like if he's going to bounce, his, his kind of belly goes out forward right before it hits actual substance and then it kind of compresses. The, the sort of like moving outwards, like right prior to hitting something is anticipatory. It's that stretch um, to squash and stretch. The stretch is used as anticipation, anticipation to the squash. Just as an aside, the uh, the previous example of a character jumping is a is a good uh, example of squash being used as anticipation to stretch as well. Mm-hmm. Just uh, tie, tying it back there, a little throwback mm-hmm. to the episode one. I like it. Um, I was I was gonna say I think that that scene in Kung Fu Panda is is also a really good example of kind of actually misleading the audience with anticipation, and that's where. You know, he's in slow-mo and he's about to eat the dumpling and then then the mouse kind of grabs it out of his mouth. But as, as an audience, kind of, the, they were leading us to believe that the panda was going to eat the dumpling. So, uh, Cooper, I know you have a little more background about this kind of, like, mis- misleading this. Yeah, no, so uh, you can do it once and uh, you think that, hey, um, like, Jack Black is going to eat that uh, um, dumpling. But then if you keep doing it, 
uh, you in slow mo, you actually anticipate that he's not going to get it because that's the whole uh, gag of it. It's not. It's no longer surprising that um, they swoop in at the last second uh, to grab the dumpling, or someone swoops in the last second to save someone. Mm-hmm. Um, if that happens multiple times, and so uh, you can kind of, as an audience member, um, anticipate the anticipation of what's going to happen, and uh, the effect decreases over time if it's overused. So we kind of almost lose lose trust that. Yeah, that we're going to do what what's, what we think is going to happen is going to happen. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so you can actually abuse it. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you abuse it enough, um, it becomes a bad thing. But if you abuse it the right amount, um, and you giggle at the saying abuse the right amount, but it's true. If you <laughs> abuse it the right amount, it does become kind of a hallmark of your story. Um, it becomes sort of like a, a trend, a, a bit in your story where that sort of... Uh, Betrayal of expectation in terms of movement is a thing that you do, um, which Looney Tunes did. They didn't. They, I don't think they overdid it. I lost my train of thought. Well, Looney Tunes usually strikes a pretty good balance where they'll have, you know, characters over exaggerate their anticipation, but then have a bunch of fast movements which have no anticipation frames for um, comedic effect. So what do you yes. think? What do you think makes it makes it funny for there not be anticipation? Like, why is it comedic? Because um, it violates your expectations, and something happens that you didn't expect, and you're like, "Whoa, I didn't expect that." There's that one scene where that um, the little red cowboy is like hammering the ship, like. In Canada, they don't have. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't have any sort of uh, Looney Tunes cartoon in Canada. So when we were showing Sophie uh, Looney Tunes earlier, um, she was just like, "What is this?" I was like, "There's Barry Bunny and uh... <laughs> <laughs> Barry Bun- <laughs> Barry B Bunny, Riley Coyote." <laughs> it's like the kid, silly duck. <laughs> so, what, what's funny about Yosemite Sam or whatever? What's funny about him hammering the ship? That's a good question. I think the frustration that came out of no anticipatory movement, like you could tell he was frustrated at the fact that he had to go back to the shipyard and go underneath the ship and hammer planks haphazardly onto a ship. So the sort of the speed at which he went there and then was hammering the board indicated that there was a, um, there was a mood to him, which is he wasn't playing no games no more. Well, that's, that's the thing. Like, it wasn't really anticipation. It was just like hammer, 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 hammer. Like it was very repetitive. And like, I think anticipation is kind of, like maybe help set up something unexpected that's going to happen, but he knows what he's going to be doing. He's going to be hammering that ship for the next two hours, you know? So Lachlan, speaking of Looney Tunes, you also had a very good example of one um, in which uh, anticipation was a uh, was used in both uh, the visual um, and uh, the sound effects as well. Is this Batman Bunny? Okay. So uh, uh, this, there's, there's, there's a Looney Tunes called, uh, called Baton Bunny. Um, for those of you who don't speak French, uh, Baton means stick. Baton? Uh, <laughs> We've played Pokemon before. Lachlan. <laughs> we know Baton Pass. Yeah, we know Baton Pass. <laughs> um, God, I hate when Australians talk down to you about French, their main language. Anyway, so in this in this cartoon, which uh, which we all had a good good old gander at, we uh, we see Bugs Bunny, and he he takes a lot of time preparing to conduct an orchestra, and for a good solid 
How, how long would it have been? About about like about a minute and a half, minute, minute, minute and a half to two minutes. A good solid minute and a half to two minutes. He's he's preparing. He's like he's uh pick, picking out his his baton. He's uh he's like sam- sampling music, and we anticipate like the orchestra is going to start at some point. And then he and then he finally raises up his arms, and he stays there for a few seconds, and we get we get super excited because we're about to hear the music. And then he looks around a bit. They they hold it there for for a bit, and we're like, "Come on, man, S- slap that baton down and get us get some get some sounds in my ears, please." <laughs> and then he does it, and we're like, "Yes, all is right, good." Um, and then after that, you can anticipate every time he moves his arms or his legs. At times, um, we expect sound to come out of the orchestra, and so that's that anticipation at the beginning mm-hmm. was then built up for us to understand how. Uh, the entire cartoon was going to go. Yeah, and Looney Tunes actually does this with uh, classical music a lot. Like, uh, they have What's Up or Dark and Ravitus Seville are good examples of that, where all the motion is in time with the music. So you're using the the music to anticipate the motion of the characters. And one thing I noticed while watching these ones, actually, is they often lack anticipation frames explicitly because of that, because they have to be in time with the music. And so it's a very like rhythmic, like dun dun dun. Something happens. Next thing, next thing, next thing. There's no, there's no like wind up. Wait a few seconds and then hit something or throw throw something. It's always yeah. Does the anticipation come from the music? I feel like a lot of these classical pieces, there's a lot of anticipation in them. Yeah, a lot of classical pieces. There'll be, I mean, like any piece of music, there'll be crescendos and you know, um, like crescendos to climaxes or. Slowdowns, or that's that's a thing. Anticipation, yeah. So it's actually a very general technique that's used not just in animation, but you know, in any. <laughs> I think I think it originally came from performing arts such as theater. Uh, yes, I are you have were any of you also theater kids? No. <laughs> no <laughs> Great, I know things. Hi, I'm Ken. I'm an engineer. But a little-known fact about me is that I used to be in theater, and then I gave that up. Not really surprised for science. Know. Were you in any musicals? Of course, I was. But which ones? Uh, I was in Susical. I was in uh, My Fair Lady. I was in shit. What was the? What was that? There was one in between. Oh, it was called My Favorite Year. It was. Ter- it was. Not, it wasn't a very good musical. Um, I was not, in those three. Not your favorite. Was it not your favorite year then? It was not my favorite year. Uh, but like, so what in theater, when you have anticipation, um, typically a lot of the motions and sort of, um, steps that you're told to do, like, um, I guess movements, I, I forgot what the actual theater term is because it's been folks, it's been nine years. It's been 10 is years. It blocking? It's called blocking. Yes. Um, it really depends on the choreographer, right? So the people who are choreographing the scene and creating a scene that, um, in terms of movement, typically have something that they want to say. But um, if you don't have a choreograph, uh, if you don't have choreography that actually gives you any sort of anticipation for what's going to happen, uh, it kind of falls flat. Which is why all the musical numbers in musicals, which is what you were bringing up. Um, a lot of the people who are participating as part of like the extra cast and not the main characters, and I'll be frank, I was mostly that, except for in Susical where I was Yertle the Turtle. Um, 
like basically your movements are meant to build up to the eventual payoff of, well, one of the main characters singing or one of the main characters doing something because you're supporting cast and you are that wind up, you're the anticipation or you are a part of that anticipatory piece that will lead up to them doing something. So if I'm you're the turtle and I'm sentencing uh, Horden the elephant to, I don't remember seasickle, I'm going to assume death. <laughs> 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 if if I'm going to sentence uh, Horton the elephant to death, um, the anticipatory reaction to that story-wise is that Horton the elephant's going to be like, "Oh no, no, don't kill me!" Oh, oh, right. So like, there's there's a reaction. It's the it's the um, action that leads to a reaction in that context. Um, but if I'm just like somebody in my fair lady who's like a drunk and I'm um, I'm helping the father uh, for the main lady part in my the, my, the fair lady and my fair lady get drunk before his wedding in hopes that I'm helping him get to the church on time while he's getting absolutely piss poor drunk. I'm there to indicate that, yes, we are getting more and more drunk as time goes on. Um, and the anticipation is that he's going to get more drunk as the night goes on as well. Does that make sense? Did all that, did all make sense? You know, for a moment, it sounded a little rambly to me. Well, I wasn't in theater, so... So what were you getting at with theater, though? Oh, I was just um, thinking about, like, anticipation outside of animation. It's a very oh, okay. general yeah. technique. And yeah. um, I was also thinking about it in terms of music. Like, um, you know, if you're, if you're listening to... Uh, what are the kids like these days? They like their Imagine e- Dragons. They're, they like their EDMs. If you listen to, you listen to your EDMs, it's, it's always... Skrillex. Always crescendos to a drop. And when it's crescendoing, you know that drop's coming. Another example of anticipation. Um, so a recent, recently a game came out. Um, Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. Might have heard about it. Kids are going crazy for it. Adults are going crazy for it. Um, the smash attacks in Super Smash Bros. Ultimate. They charge, right? So um, one of the mechanics is as you're holding these attacks longer and longer, the character's winding up into an animation, almost like an anticipatory animation where they're going to let loose. They're going to really just... Fuck up whoever's in front of them. And I mean, they're, they're just going to smash them. Anyway, um, there's a lot of good examples of anticipatory animation uh, in those smash attacks. Uh, off the top of my head, Fox is a great one. Sonic is a great one. Sonic winds back and he starts winding his arm like a, like a cartoon character from the 40s in a circular motion, ready to punch. Uh, Fox kind of crouches down, ready to strike with his claws. Um, King K. Rule kind of leans back with his big old boxing glove. And you know he's going to use that boxing glove when he releases. Um, all this motion, though, is the big wind-up to the eventual payoff. Uh, and that payoff is typically in the form of damage. And the longer that you hold it, the more damage it's going to do. And it feels like they're storing energy in mm-hmm. there, in their fists. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of ties into another example. Um, so I, I showed a clip from Akira earlier. It's the bike scene um, in the beginning of Akira where uh, some gangs are fighting. Uh, one of the gang members from, uh, the, from of the two gangs is holding this long metal pipe. And uh, he's on his bike, and he's kind of using it as like a quarterstaff where he's winding back his arm and he's ready to strike with it and then eventually he gets uh next to the enemy bike gang member and he we already knew that he was going to use it because he wound back his arm and is lifting the pipe above his head but as soon as he gets next to the other bike gang member he releases and we knew it because he had that anticipatory movement 
I'm thinking, um, sorry to interrupt you. I'm thinking I want to say about that though. Is I feel like in that one, like he, there's a big windup. Like it's for probably about like you know five or six seconds. But when he actually hits the gang member, it's just like a little tough. It's actually not very. Yeah. It's a bit anticlimactic. It's actually not yeah. very satisfying. Where the anticipation, yeah. the the result really wasn't mm-hmm. like um, scaling with mm-hmm. with the amount of anticipation it was. The anticipation was it, he was going to hit someone. But we didn't know how much force it was until later, and it was kind of mm-hmm. yeah, like you said, not very satisfying because yeah. huge wind up for a very small. Hit. Is this, was this the hit on the shoulder? Uh, no, that was the second one when he wound up above himself, like he was striking down with a sword. This yeah. is like to so the that, side. That, that one's an interesting one because he, he does like a huge wind up above his head and then smashes it down on this on this gang member, and it hits him in the shoulder, but it sort of just stops there, and the gang member's like, "Ow, that kind of hurt," but it shows shows how. Uh, I, how strong that gang member is. But I think it also hit the back of the seat because that gang member had a very tall back. Um, and so I think that that stopped the motion as well. I'm, I'm not sure about that, but I kind of... Well, I, I, I was feeling. impressed with the gang member, but I can yeah. be impressed with the seat as well. Um, actually, you might be right. I might be misremembering. But um, we're going to cut with the... With if, the if, with if anyone has seen Akira and wants to, wants to correct us... Uh, you can tweet at us at uh, Cutting Frames on Twitter. Uh, if you join our um, Patreon, then uh, each $5 patron will shout out um, your name at the end of every episode, and we'll tell you what, what animation principle reminds us most of you. <laughs> we're not going to have a Patreon. We're, we're, we all make enough money where we don't need to. We don't need to do oh, that. Talk for yourself. Yeah. Okay. Excuse me. <laughs> you don't uh, know me. Trying to create a community with our fans. Yeah. So not to, whatever. Okay. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Do any of you have an example that Sophie? You had some examples. I, I, I have one about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, hi, Sophie. Uh, <laughs> no. Um. We can we can we can edit this in so it's smooth. But 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 hear me out, guys. So Smash Ultimate also introduced um, when you okay. get hit by a smash attack. There's um, and, and the yes. character is predicted to die, to get knocked out of that ring like a good old sumo wrestler <laughs> when they when they're going to go flying and die. Uh, the camera will the game will freeze for a bit, zoom in, and give you a good old view of. Your own character getting 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 walloped, smashed, if you will. Yes, and uh, then you and then you're like, oh no, or you're like, yes, take that, you fool. That's all well and good until it actually doesn't kill them based on how they programmed it, which is both <laughs> either very satisfying if you were going to be the one who got killed, or very disappointing if you are the one doing the smash. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's an emotional roller coaster. But it works. It really does add to the game. Um, I would like to talk about games and sort of anticipatory movement in them later. But uh, Sophie, you had a couple of examples. Um, honestly, I really, I really can't remember anything important to say about them. Lilo and Stitch. There was one wow. with Stitch with the with the grenade, or the rather the the gun that was about to explode. That one that one's worth talking about, I guess. Well, um, Stitch has this kind of orb of energy that he ends up throwing at. The bad purple guy who turns good. Spoiler alert, everyone. Sorry. Uh, doctor? Professor? Anyway. Um, I don't remember his name. He was on Kingdom Hearts for by sleep, but I just, for the life of me, can't remember. So anyway, Stitch throws this glowing ball of energy, and the energy exits the frame, 
But Stitch's eyes follow the energy, so we know where it's going, even though we can't see it, mm -hmm. and we know that Stitch's eyes are moving toward where his his friend was. Mm -hmm. So he, it's gonna it's gonna hit him. And he didn't he also prep uh, the throw too when it was yeah. he was juggling in his hand. Yeah, he did. He kind of did a little wind up. Yep. And then uh, I think the same thing happened uh, with the alien, in which. His eyes track the ball, but he doesn't move at all. And so we are meant to believe that he's just going to watch this as it hits him in, his, in the face. Mm -hmm. If you want to hear Ken's opinions on Reloaded Stitch, join our $5 Patreon. Making <laughs> uh, <laughs> an extra podcast every week where Ken talks about the things he likes and doesn't like. Join our Discord. <laughs> Which you can get access to if you pay $10 on Patreon a month. Uh, yeah, we call that our um, casty tier. There's also the, the potty tier. Mm -hmm. So, Sophie, uh, Lilo and Stitch was a really great example of anticipatory movement. Uh, do you have any other examples? Um, there was the penguin running. I mean, that was a bit hard to describe. I, I, we'll link it because we need to see it, but it combines anticipation and splash and stretch pretty well. So I want to talk about anticipatory movement in, in video games. So we talked about Smash having really good examples. Uh, but there are also bad examples of anticipatory movement. And I feel like one of them is uh, typically shooters. So if we talk about shooters and we're just talking about like the aim scheme, right? If we see somebody else and they're aiming and they're kind of like they're, they're lining up their sights, there, there's no anticipatory movement when it comes to uh, like older shooters like Halo, right? You see... Master Chief running around, he's going up, he's going down. It's a direct one-to-one, -one, but there are not there are not additional animations on top of that controller-based animation that actually leads up to us knowing what Master Chief is going to do. So like jumping, for example. There's no wind-up to jumping in the original Halo. In fact, in Halo 2, there's no wind-up. Um, honestly, I think that doesn't really come into the, the sort of like video game space until more recently, where we have these extra resources to actually um, implement these additional animations, where if you jump from a high place, oh, yeah, um, you're going to start to like fall in a weird way. You're not just going to be in the sort of static standing animation. You're now going to have like your arms above your head. You're going to expect a large collision on the ground because you're moving at a fast speed. And then you crouch when you hit the ground because you're you're slamming down and you are compressing. Well, uh, I was going to say that it's, uh, it's, it's especially a problem in online shooters. For yes. example, when you see another character jump, it means they hit the jump button sometime mm -hmm. in the past. Yes. And so since you can't go back in time and yes. have, them, have them crouch and wind up their jump, <laughs> what's, what's, what's a, a, a game animated to do? Yeah, what makes me yep. think is I, I feel like Especially in online games, it's very important. How do you balance anticipation with responsiveness, right? Because I feel like it's very important yep. to be responsive, especially in shooters, especially online. If it's a competitive game, I 100% agree. Um, it's it's hard to do. You really there's really no way to properly address it unless you make it part of the game's mechanics. Well, we should talk about the arrow example. I think it was from Dota League of Legends. Uh, yeah, that was. Um, so there's a good GDC talk called "The Best Animation Tricks of the Trade" for 2016. Uh, which you can find on YouTube. Um, and a character animated from Riot talks about how they made the animations in League of Legends very responsive and feel good using this one simple trick. Basically, they put the animation, the anticipation 
frame at the end of the animation. So the example that they use is a character called Varus, who is he has he has a bow and arrow, and he shoots the bow and arrow. That's his attack. And uh, they don't know whether you're gonna want to shoot another arrow or do anything else, but they always have him end by winding up the pulling back the bowstring and anticipating the next shot, and that ends up looking really good and feeling very responsive because if you do another attack, he's going to have that bow ready. He's already anticipated that and it fires straight away and it feels nice and crispy. So it balances the uh, immediate response to the player's input and then it has the anticipation at the end while they wait for the other input to happen. So that's how they Mm -hmm. uh, successfully put it in. Yeah, and if it's repeating like this, you can't tell that the anticipation frame is at the end. Mm -hmm. I feel like uh, for games like um, top-down sort of uh, MOBAs like Dota 2 or League, uh, it's much easier to include those sort of anticipatory animations, primarily because um, the users are trained that each attack has a certain time span or um, length of attack where the animation completes after this time. But in FPS, where you're supposed to embody someone and it's supposed to be more quick, more responsive because it's, it's a high-intensity game, it is harder to integrate those uh, animations, except for maybe grenade toss. I feel like grenade toss, um, you are kind of taught that there's a lead up, there's a there's a wind up to it. Well, I feel like I, even just first person versus third person, right? Where you're actually embodying a character versus mm-hmm. you're just controlling a character, like I like in League, where mm-hmm. the expectations for responsiveness might be different. Uh, so uh, Apex Legends, new game, hot game. Um, I think it's a lot of fun. I've been playing a lot lately. Um, they try to combine Overwatch with like the typical like PUBG sort of survival game, right? Where each character has these abilities. I think these abilities are great examples of anticipatory movements in some case. There's a character called Mirage where he raises out his arm and a duplicate of himself runs out in front of him. He is creating a duplicate. Um, when he raises out that arm, that is anticipatory movement for him using his ability. So I think there are instances where in um, highly competitive games you can have anticipatory movements but I don't know if it's necessarily as part of the core gameplay or the sort of additional well it is part of the core gameplay well, but often it's a risk reward it's um, usually the higher reward attacks will have more anticipation like the smash attacks mm-hmm. for instance or guns that take a time to charge before yeah. shooting so it's, um, it's highly, highly rewarding if you hit yeah. it but the enemy can see what you're up to they know, they know what game you're playing. So, um, if you played Halo 3, there's this weapon called the Spartan Laser. Now, the Spartan Laser, it takes like five seconds to charge up and shoots this huge red beam. And it makes this huge sound, this like... And then like everything starts to shake and then it just... And everybody knows that it's about to shoot. That sort of anticipatory weapon animation was... Uh, it's what made the weapon the weapon, right? So, like, yes... Yes, it is high, high risk, high reward. Um, but then when it comes to VR, it's kind of hard to, to, to really come to terms with that. There's, right now in VR, there's really no anticipatory movement because we're not able to track the body one-to-one. Um, so I'd like to talk about VR and anticipatory movement in VR, if you're all okay with that, fellow co-hosts. Yep. So uh, I love VR. I know Lachlan loves VR. Uh, we both work on uh, XR platforms, um, so we focus on AR and VR. I focus on more AR. I think that you probably deal with more VR in your day-to-day, right? Uh, it's a mix of both. Um, so I focus on HoloLens development. 
prior to that, uh, I focused a lot on VR um, development for character animation. Um, right now in the VR ecosystem, there's a problem of mapping inputs to character animations and properly representing users. Uh, primarily because when you're supposed to embody someone, it's disconcerting to see animations that aren't your own. Um, or rather, animations that represent movements of the body that aren't your own, and it's on a one-to-one, um, without it looking somewhat unnatural. Now, I personally believe there's a happy medium there, but it requires a lot of finesse and a lot of um, artistic liberty. So is the anticipation for the user that it should be acting just like they do in real life? Is that the issue? That is the issue. And it creates this sort of uncanny valley um, situation. So like in VR chat and uh, alt space, movements of users are sort of erratic. They're sort of uh, sudden, primarily because when you're just tracking a head in two hands, the rest of the body is not moving in an anticipatory way that allows you to understand what they're going to do or what their intent is. So the things that you pay attention to rather than body languages is head position as well as arm positions. And um, for the most part, the system kind of just uses those to determine what the character is actually going to do. Um, now, in the future, we're probably going to be able to track more points of the body. But for now, we're limited by three points of tracking or, or eyes even. Or eyes even, or um, that's also pretty important because like the lack of eye contact or following the eyes where you know where the user is actually looking rather than moving the head just left or right, very important in terms of communication. I know one of the principles of animation has to do with, um, I don't know which one, but one has to do with um, characters using their, using their eyes to uh, predict what they're going to do. Or like begin a motion with their eyes and then their mm-hmm. head and then their neck and then the rest of their body. Because that's what humans do. Yeah. So like the thing with VR right now is that because um, eye tracking is a new tech that is about to be integrated into a bunch of VR headsets and AR headsets. Can you say that? Okay, cool. Uh, this will be aired after. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, so the problem is, is that because this new virgin tech isn't yet implemented into a lot of VR and AR te- uh, games and technology stacks... Uh, we have a lot of lifeless characters running around. Uh, I think that one of the things that a lot of these games kind of neglect primarily because the tech is still in its baby phase, if I would be so bold as to say that, or maybe in its toddler phase, it's about to take its first steps. Um, There's sort of a problem with replicating the human body and replicating what humans do, and that's because there's a lack of anticipation caused by the lack of input. Uh, Sophie, you had something to say? Well, um, I was just kind of thinking that, you know, the principles animations were um, developed so that we could represent things that humans do in physics and the way the world works with symbols, right? And, like, we mm-hmm. could recognize kind of the language that the animators use to kind of translate to things in the real world. Mm-hmm. Would it make sense, since a lot of these don't really, a lot of the principles animation don't really seem to apply to VR because anticipation, right? It's kind of hard to to, you know, anticipate the motion of a person um, in kind of a programmatic way, would it make sense for there to be some new principles of VR where we can create a new VR language? Um, it might. I think that it would be heavily derived off the principles of animation, though. But um, I think for the most part, you can actually anticipate what users are going to do. It's just that there aren't many people who are focused on it as part of their like content, as part of what they deliver, primarily because they think that the experience is the main point. 
and uh, not the actual representation of humans. Because right now, a lot there aren't that many multiplayer VR experiences. I mean, they're, they're present, Rec Room, Alt Space, uh, VR Chat, but um, the sort of like embodiment portion where you are embodying the character is not the focus. It's the experience itself. It's the communication layer. Um, but the communication layer is forgetting the humanity, if that makes sense. So adopting the principles of animation would probably help it, but it requires somebody who's familiar with them. And I feel like a lot of the people who are implementing these tech stacks just aren't really familiar with them. So bad examples of um, where anticipation can go wrong is, um, one is, it's good to have a character anticipating a movement, but you should only ever do one motion at a time. If they're, so one example is a character pulling something out of their pocket. They're gonna, they're gonna, gonna pull their arm up and then shove it in their pocket and then take something out. And you're like, yeah, that's very clear what they're doing. But if they're also doing something with the other hand, like throwing a baseball, that's too much to keep track of. And uh, it's, uh, it's, it's confusing and it's uncomfortable. Usually with anticipation, uh, you're doing it to prep an action so that you get the audience to look at that thing to do it, uh, to um, understand what's going to happen next. And so if there's too much uh, in the scene or a uh, character's doing too much, it actually makes it worse because there's way too, much, too many things going on to focus on that one action that's supposed to be the anticipation. I think this kind of ties back a little bit to what you're talking about with squash and stretch where, you know, like a, an animation like frame, like, you know, like the whole kind of pixel grid is pretty large. So kind of thinking to the audience where they should be looking, I think it, it is really important, right? Like, you know, like when you're, of course, the quintessential baseball swing, they're putting their arm back, you know, that you're going to be watching the hand on that arm that's pulling back, right? Because we know that's, they're going to, they're going to throw something. So even if there's like other baseball players in the background or whatever, we're like, I don't care what they're doing. Yeah, this is this actually leads into the, the, the next principle of animation, which is, I believe, staging. Um, which you'll find out about next month. Yeah, I ain't saying nothing. I ain't saying nothing. We're, we are, we are tight-lipped and a tight ship. Well, it's getting to be about that time where we're about out of things to talk about. Just about. Anyway, point being, thank you for listening to this episode of Cutting Frames. Anticipation. Next episode uh, will be on staging, which uh, once we learn that, we'll figure out how to do a better outro and start staging that better. I <laughs> get it. <laughs> anyway, I'm Ken. I'm Cooper. I'm Lachlan. And I'm late for dinner. See you later.